Well, it was like spending time with an old friend again this week, studying back in the book of Hebrews. I hope you are excited to to be back there together as I am. Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue through this wonderful book. Around the equator, there's a notorious area that sailors have universally learned to dread and, if possible, avoid. The reason this area is avoided has nothing to do with the sailor's skill level or their bravery, but it has everything to do with the fact that a successful sailor's greatest need is actually something that's outside of their control. The sailor's greatest need, of course, is wind. And this is an area around the equator called the doldrums. It's called the doldrums because it's known to have long periods with no wind. And throughout history, sailors have been stuck there for days and even weeks praying and hoping for wind. And this area has become so popular and well-known for its lack of wind that the doldrums and that word has come to refer even to a person who is experiencing depression or a state of inactivity. But as it turns out, the doldrums are not just limited to sailing or even to generalized depression, but many Christians have gone through spiritual dry spells in which they find themselves in a state of spiritual depression and spiritual inactivity. Like a sailor sitting on a fully functional boat with sails extended, yet staring at his reflection in the motionless water on a windless sea, the believer has all that he or she needs to keep on trusting and keep on serving the Lord, but there seems to be no wind in their spiritual sails. What do we do when we find ourselves in the spiritual doldrums? Is there any way out? Well, the author of Hebrews this morning wants to blow spiritual wind into our sails and help us to sail out of spiritual lethargy and spiritual inactivity. It's because he's writing to a group of Christians who are busy staring at their own reflection on the glassy ocean surface, and he is determined to get them moving again. He knows that in this state of spiritual apathy, they are dangerously subject to the currents in the world around them, and they have to move forward. And so it is that he blows spiritual truth, theological truth, into their sails to move them forward. We've been in the third of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The theme of Hebrews, of course, is the superiority of Christ. We are now uh, in the tail end of this second section. We're in a longer section, chapter 4, verse 14, through the end of chapter 7. But in that longer section, there are four parts, of which we are in the second part, a personal admonition and warning. We'll finish that section today, Lord willing. But let's look at the first 12 verses together in Hebrews 6. Let's read Hebrews 6 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it And brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it's also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. 
in this section, the author has been telling us over and over again that we are to cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity. That, again, will be the theme of what the author says to us this morning. We've seen the overarching concern of spiritual lethargy, of spiritual apathy, at the end of chapter 5. We've seen the concern for spiritual progress introduced at the beginning of chapter 6. We've seen that we're to beware of apostasy in the middle of chapter 6, which was followed by this apostasy illustrated in verses 7 to 8. You remember the last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at this illustration of two fields. Both fields received the rain. Both fields received the nutrients given by God. But one field produces good fruit and is therefore blessed. Another field produces thorns and thistles and is therefore cursed and eventually burned. We said then that this was to illustrate the true nature of apostasy. The apostate is one who appears outwardly to look like a Christian, to to do the things outwardly that Christians do, but who has never truly been regenerated at, at the heart level. They've never really been saved. And so eventually that evidences itself through their lack of fruit. Not just their lack of fruit, but the production of bad fruit. That's the idea of apostasy. That was a sober warning. It was as if the author grabbed us by the shirt to shake us out of our spiritual lethargy, to say, wake up, this is dangerous. You're you're, you're towards the edge of falling off a cliff here. Watch out. And that was a, a negative motivation. It was a motivation to be sure, but it was a warning. But the author this morning also recognizes that he needs to give us not only the negative side of that warning, but the positive side of that warning. And that's what we turn our attention to today. Having warned us to waken from our spiritual lethargy, our slumber, he now softly comes along as a a friend and a spiritual mentor and brother and encourages us of the blessing that comes with obedience to pursue spiritual maturity. Let's read again our specific verses for this morning, which are found in Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12. But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love with which you've shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Very simply, we see two encouragements here, two positive encouragements to press on in the faith. The first of those, encouragement number one, is that God will remember our fruit. God will remember our fruit, verses 9 to 10. In verse 9, he begins, but... So he's turning now from what he said, still in the same vein, but slightly turning and says, but beloved, beloved. Now the tone here immediately shifts. He goes from this stern warning, this grab you by the shirt sort of tone, to a friendly, loving tone. He calls them beloved. This is a term of endearment. This is the term that's used throughout the scriptures to refer to those who the author would believe are true Christians. He's intending to come alongside them and encourage them. This is a good reminder, by the way, that we too are to be balanced in the way that we seek to encourage one another in the faith. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, even if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The author says, listen, the dangers of apostasy are real, The consequences are severe, and you have to understand what you're facing if you continue on this path of spiritual lethargy. But at the same time, he says, Christian, the blessings of obedience are immense. And I want to encourage you, he says, that I see you as beloved ones. Though I've warned you in this way for your good, my my thoughts of you actually are positive You are beloved. He goes on to spell that out clearly to them. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. 
So as the author looks at the scope of the lives of these people in this church, he starts to see that there are real reasons to believe that these are not apostates. These are true Christians who have fallen into a state of spiritual lethargy that simply need to be called back into striving for the Lord. You can see how his argument works. It's as if he built up to this climactic point, this climactic warning, and now having gotten to that climax, he, he softens his tone and says, but, but beloved, I don't have that concern about you. I don't really think that you're going to leave the faith. I'm not concerned about that ultimately. In fact, I think better things for you. And he describes those better things as things that accompany salvation. I think of you as believers, he says. Which, by the way, just highlights again what we said when we studied the passage previously, that the things that were described previously in Hebrews 6 do not describe a true Christian. It describes someone who may appear to be a true Christian in every outward way, um, but has never really been changed at the heart level, so there's no spiritual fruit in their life. So it's not a true Christian in that case who lost his or her salvation. It's one who appeared to be a Christian who evidenced the true nature of their heart by walking away. But the confidence here is to be a positive motivation for these believers to press on, to get back up, to keep going, to put wind in their sails. He confirms this even further by saying, though we are speaking in this way. So though I've given you this harsh warning and I've warned you legitimately about apostasy, I know that that's the way I was speaking to you, but beloved, I don't actually think that of you. I actually think that you will inherit the blessing of salvation because my expectation is that you will obey my instruction and you will press on to maturity, evidencing true spiritual fruit. But there's a specific reason why he has this confidence. Why is it that he would say that this is his expectation of them? He introduces that with the word for. Verse 10, for, here's the reason. And what we find is that his confidence doesn't rest in anything that he sees in them specifically, but, but something in the character of God. For, here's the reason, verse 10, for God is not unjust. For God is not unjust. It is the justice of God, the righteousness of God's character that provides the basis for his confidence that this group of Christians will ultimately press on to maturity and thereby receive the safe harbor, the blessing of eternal salvation. Again, this is a reminder for us that our confidence in the outcome of our salvation cannot rest in ourselves. It must, it must always rest in the character of God. The truth is your salvation, if it was dependent on you in any way, you would have no reason for assurance. In fact, if it was dependent on you in any way, you could have confidence and assurance that you would lose it because we can't hold it. We can't earn it. We can't keep it. We can't bring it to completion. But God can. The only way that we can ever have assurance and confidence in our salvation is if it's wholly based on who God is and what God has done and what he has said. It is God who has brought you from death to life in regeneration. It is God who will keep you safe through this life in the process of sanctification. And it is God, Christian, who will bring you safely home to final salvation that we call glorification. But the common denominator and the ground of our confidence has to do with something fundamental to the nature of God and not something fundamental to us. That's why it says in Titus 3, 5 to 7, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But when the author says he has this confidence in them, and specifically this confidence in God, there's one particular aspect of God's justice that's on his mind. What exactly is it that the author is confident in God here? Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work. God is not unjust to forget 
your work. So the justice of God here in this context has to do with something that he will be faithful to remember. And the thing that he will be faithful to remember, he says, is their work, their spiritual fruit. Now, don't miss the significance of what the authors just said. He brings up this issue of their righteous deeds, their works, but his confidence, he says, is not in the works, but in God. His confidence is in the justice of God to remember those works, and just like that field, that illustration of the field that bore good fruit, received the blessing of salvation, he says, God will not be faithless in your case, but just like that field that received the blessing of salvation, he will give you the blessing of salvation. Now, this is subtle, but it's incredibly important for us. It's an important distinction for us. Because we often call ourselves, rightly, biblically, to examine our hearts and to look in our lives for good spiritual fruit. The Bible's clear that we ought to do that. We've talked a lot about that over the last few lessons in Hebrews. But what the author is saying here is that when we find good fruit, the basis of our assurance of salvation is not the fruit itself. It is the character of God. Now, why? Why is the basis not the fruit, but the character of God? Because it's God who produces the fruit, and it's God who blesses the fruit, and it's God ultimately who will give us the reward of salvation for the fruit. It's God in the beginning, it's God in the middle, it's God in the end. Our confidence is in the character of God who promised to bring about the fruit in his people that he requires and then who promised to bless that fruit once it's produced. We look for the fruit not because the fruit in and of itself saves us, but because the fruit is evidence that God has saved us. Therefore, we have assurance of our salvation because that fruit proves that we belong to God and God has begun a work in us and he will complete the work that he began. This is Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Think of it this way. Imagine a man decides to leave his business career and go into farming. But in reality, he doesn't know anything about farming. But he decides to buy an apple orchard. But the truth is that that he can't really tell an apple tree from a grapevine. And so the seller of the field is constantly assuring him, this is an apple orchard that you're buying, but it's in the wintertime. So all the trees have no leaves, they have no fruit, they just, you know how they look, they look dead even though they're alive. He can't tell what kind of trees they are, but the seller is promising him, this is a good investment, these are in fact apple trees. And so he invests all that he has and he buys this field of apple trees, trusting that the seller is telling the truth. When the spring arrives and those trees start to sprout leaves, his heart begins to swell with excitement and anticipation. And then one morning he goes out to check on the trees as he does every other morning and he finds on the first tree a tiny little red apple shining in the morning sun. Now when he sees that apple, he rejoices. But his rejoicing doesn't just last for the moment or even for the day or even just for that harvest season. His rejoicing is continual because now he knows that he can sleep soundly knowing that this really is an orchard of apple trees. And that if these are apple trees, they won't just produce apples today, but because by nature apple trees produce apples He can know that next year's harvest will be apples and the next year's harvest will be apples and those apple trees will only ever produce apples. And so you see, the the fruit gives him the, the confidence about the nature of the tree. But it's not the fruit in and of itself that gives the assurance. It's what the fruit says about those kinds of trees. In the same way, The author says, I have a confident expectation that you, Hebrews, are true believers and that you will not defect from the faith. You will not be apostates. And it's because I believe your works have shown that God has regenerated you. He has given you a new nature and therefore you will persevere because God has truly done a work in you. This is the proper way to self-evaluate your spiritual life. 
When you as a true Christian look at your spiritual life and you're able to identify real fruits of the Spirit, where you're able to say, you know what, I'm not who I used to be. The fruit of the Spirit is growing on my tree. Then that should breed joy and confidence in you about your salvation because the only explanation for that fruit being on your tree is that God did a work in you. And God never leaves a project unfinished. So as you see the fruit in your life, even though the fruit might be smaller than you would like and sparser than you would like, it should bring tears of joy and humility and gratitude to you as you say, thank you, God, that you have made it evident that I am one of yours. And you've made it clear to me because I know myself and left to myself, I'm selfish and I'm proud, and I'm arrogant, and I'm impatient, and I'm without self-control. And yet suddenly I see in my life the spiritual fruits of kindness and patience and goodness growing in me in growing measure. And the only explanation for that is that you have made me new. And your word says, if you have made me new today, then you will hold me tomorrow, and you will bring me safely home. That's how assurance works. When you see fruit in your life, Christian, don't rejoice in the fruit in and of itself. Rejoice in the fact that it means if you have fruit on your tree, God has done a work in you. And therefore, your assurance is based on the solid character of God that you'll have fruit tomorrow and the next day and the next because God never fails. Once you see how transformative this perspective is, the author has confidence because he sees fruit in their life And that tells him there must be a work of God here. But what fruit does he see? What are these works specifically? Notice he says in verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There's a lot here packed into these Words, But first of all, notice that the primary fruit that he's mentioning here is that he has seen them consistently minister to the body of Christ. That they, they freely serve other believers in the church, not just in the past, but he says, you're still doing this. There's a pattern in your life of serving the saints, of ministering to the saints. But ultimately, he points out the reason that the service of other believers is significant And the significance for that service is what motivated the service. Notice he says, the love which you've shown towards his name in ministering to the saints. The ministry to the saints is not in and of itself the point. It's the fruit that shows there must be love for God in their hearts that motivates then the service of the saints. When it says you've shown love towards his name, his, saying God's name in that way is a reference to God as a, as a sum total of who he is, all of his attributes and characteristics. When, it, when God honors his name or another person honors his name, that is to honor God himself. So in short, the author saying, I've seen your selfless service of the saints, and the only explanation for that service is that you love God, and therefore your love for God has overflown out of your heart to love also his people. This reminds us that all true service of other Christians must flow first from a love for God. In fact, Jesus would go on to say that we're not just to love those who are lovable, we're to even love our enemies, Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." The only way that we could ever hope to love other people who are sinners just like us is if that love is not dependent on them and who they are, but it's flowing out of the fact that we love God. Therefore, it's dependent on who he is. So we love one another. Even when we sin against each other, we keep loving one another because that love really is a love for God that is evidencing itself in love for others. 
And this is what the author says he sees in the saints. Let me ask you, how exactly are you showing your love for the saints? Is there a love for God's people? Does it evidence itself in the service of the saints? Maybe we would like an example of what that might look like. Well, as we think contextually about what it is that the author may have seen in these Hebrew Christians, there's another passage later in chapter 10 that we'll get to that I want to read that gives an example of at least some of the ways that they've been serving other Christians. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. The author says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, these verses clue us in to what may have been going on in the context here, tempting these believers to grow weary and apathetic in the faith. Apparently, they were experiencing a, a very severe form of persecution that's coming at them because they're in Christ, and yet they're standing faithfully in the face of that persecution. Part of that faithfulness is that they've been eager to support other believers who are also being persecuted. Some of them have even been imprisoned for their faith. So they're going and they're, they're visiting and they're supporting these believers who've been imprisoned wrongly. And this identification with these prisoners has caused them to also come under the microscope. And it says to the point that some have lost their possessions, their property has been seized as a form of persecution. They've lost all that they have. And so this is the reason that the author begins to have great confidence in their faith because he sees, look how you've served the saints, even to your own self-harm, to the point that you lost your own possessions, you went and you served them. And this is probably the reason that these believers are starting to struggle. They're growing apathetic in their faith, and it's because, like all of us, when a trial in our life grows long and heavy, and it becomes difficult to see an end date to our weariness, we begin to get tired. We begin to wonder, I don't know if I'm going to make it through to the end. How am I going to cross the finish line on this one? I can't even see a finish line in the distance. And it may be that this particular trial of persecution has cost them spiritually, it's cost them personally in a real way, and now they're looking at their circumstance instead of Christ, and they're beginning to be apathetic in their faith. So to motivate them, God, or God through the author comes alongside them and says, God won't forget your service. Hold on. God sees. Be encouraged. Keep going. Keep running. God has evidenced in you that you are his through this fruit. So be encouraged. God has begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion. That's the idea of this reminder of their works and this reminder of the character of God. It also reminds us practically that God highly values our service of one another. In fact, in Matthew 25, in this description of the judgment and the separation of the sheep from the goats, it is the, the service of his people that Jesus uses in this, this separating of the two. Matthew 25, verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. 
Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked, sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so it is that the author here has great confidence in the salvation of these that he's writing to because he has seen the fruit that Christ mentions here in Matthew 25. They have cared for the saints. They've taken care of their practical needs. They've visited them in prison. They've stood alongside them in the battle, even to the point that it brought them personal harm. Love for Christ will result in loving and serving his people. And here we come to an amazing truth. Think of this. Based on what the author has said here, God has committed himself to forget our sins, but he will never forget our service. Think of that. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has, has chosen to forget our sins, not in the sense that cognitively he doesn't know them. That would be impossible. He knows all things. But he has chosen by his grace that we would be forgiven, that our sins would be atoned for, and so they will never come up again. There will be no more judgment for those sins because it's been poured out on his son. But amazingly, God not only commits to cast away our sins from his memory, he commits never to forget our service of him that we've done out of love for his name. And he does that even though he knows the only reason we did that is because he's at work in us. This is what we call grace. Grace upon grace. He'll not only not forget it, but reward it with eternal life. Even the Bible speaks of other rewards that we receive for service, even though it's him. It's him that's done it in us. So this morning, look at your life. Look at your life for the fruit of the love of Christ, evidenced by selflessly serving the people of Christ in this church. Do you love God's people? Do you give yourself away for God's people? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the same confidence that the author has for these believers applies to you as well. This is meant to be wind in your sails this morning. Are you weary and beaten down by the trials of life and the battle with sin? Has the journey of the Christian race begun to seem very long? Then look up and take note of the fact that Christ has produced fruit in you. And if that's true, it means you belong to him. And if that's true, it means you'll always belong to him. And he will bring you safely home. And as you think on that, suddenly you notice there's wind again in your sails, pushing you forward onto new service and new heights. This is the solution for the Christian doldrums. Look at the fruit that God has produced in your life and let it remind you not of the fruit of itself or in and of itself, but of God and what it means, the testimony it is to his work in your life. And you'll notice yourself suddenly with strength to press on, strength to continue another day serving the Lord. This is the first encouragement. It's a call to reorient our thinking. But the second encouragement flows out of the first and it's, it goes a step beyond. Not only is our thinking to be transformed, but we're to act on these truths. And so encouragement number two is a call to action. Diligence will secure our hope. Diligence will secure our hope, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 begins, and we desire, and we desire. Now this is a second Description. First, he says they're convinced of something. Now he says they desire something here in verse 11. And this desire is that each of them would be moved to action. Notice the individuality of this desire. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you, every single one, this is not intended for the group as a group, but for each individual within the group, for all of them to be motivated to do this thing. And what is his desire for them? 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Show the same diligence. This is the ultimate desire of the author and of God through the author for his people. The diligence that they've shown in the past to evidence their love for Christ through service of the body needs to continue. Keep going. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. He wants them to stop and take an assessment of just how encouraging their fruit is of the past and then be motivated by that to get up and to keep running and to be diligent. This is another way of saying I want you to press on to maturity. It's right back to the theme that we've been studying. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't stop serving. And this diligence, he says, is going to have a very important result in your life, Christian. As you, as you strain yourself to serve the Lord and, and to be diligent, here's the, the fruit of that. Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. He says, I want you to persevere. I want you to show this diligence because ultimately that's going to bring the assurance of hope, the hope of your salvation. And I want you to keep that assurance all the way to the end. I want you to take it all the way till Christ brings you home. This is a helpful balance for us. The scriptures are always balanced. Because while it's absolutely true that our salvation and even our fruit is wholly attributed to God and God alone, the Bible is also very clear that we are expected to be diligent in our pursuit of holiness. We are to give our effort to grow, to understand the Scriptures more, to live out the Scriptures more, to love Christ more, to serve Him more. We're to give our effort towards these things, and the author's balancing that here. He says, we're convinced of this truth because of who God is. Now we're calling you to be motivated by that, to act, be diligent, keep going, don't stop. J.C. Ryle says it this way, I bless God that our salvation in no wise depends on our own works. But I, would never, I never would have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on our manner of living. This is the author's concern. He wants them to maintain a firm sense of assurance of their hope all the way to the end of their lives. And to do that, they're going to have to commit themselves to diligence, to keep going, to keep serving, to keep pursuing. The spiritual apathy that they've been tolerating will ultimately rob them of that blessed assurance. It'll, it'll make it on shaky ground. This is why when in our own Christian life, when we grow lax in our relationship with Christ and when we see sin begin to creep back into our lives in certain areas we thought we'd put to death, that's why our assurance begins to wobble. It's because that, that lack of diligence naturally brings about a shaky assurance. But the solution then is not to stay in that stagnant place in the doldrums, but it is to get up and to run, to be diligent, running towards and for Christ. And the author is now going to blow some more wind in our sails. You might say, well, that's easy to say, just get up and run. But I'm on the ground. I'm struggling. It's hard. I don't feel that I have strength in my legs to get up and run. Why are you just saying to me, get up and run? What's going to be the wind to propel me to run? Well, the author says, verse 12, so that. I want you to do that for this reason. And what he's going to tell us is one negative thing and one positive thing. We could say he's going to tell us what we have to put off and what we have to put on. Here's, first of all, what we have to put off so that you will not be sluggish. I want you to get up and I want you to be diligent in your pursuit of serving Christ because I want you to put off your sluggishness. The word sluggish here is literally the word lazy. I don't want you to be lazy, spiritually lazy. And this is exactly what he's been saying to them throughout this entire text. The apathy apparently is coming from weariness. The weariness because of this trial of persecution. And he says, you've got to put off the spiritual laziness. You've got, to, you've got to set that aside intentionally, but not just put off. I want you to put on something in its place. Well, well, what? He says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want you to put off your laziness, Christian. Put aside your apathy and I want you instead to put on in its place imitation. I want you to be an imitator. 
So at our spiritual low points, when our arms feel heavy and our hearts feel weary, how can we actively put wind in our sails? How can we get out of the spiritual doldrums? Well, first, we remember, we reflect on the fruit that God has produced, and then we remember what that means about who we are in God and what it means for our future in God. That puts wind in our sails. But secondly, now the author says, I want you to call to mind intentionally faithful Christians who have gone on before you and be encouraged by their example. Be encouraged, he says, by two things in particular, their faith and their patience as they waited to inherit the promises of God. Both faith and patience are essential to us persevering in spiritual diligence. Now, this theme of imitating the faithful will be important for us in Hebrews. We'll come back to it next week, and we'll have a whole chapter on it in in chapter 11. But here, the author wants us to remember that we are not the first to have to wait for the promises of God. Not by far. There's a long line of faithful believers who have loved God and served God for decades waiting to see the promises of God fulfilled. The promise, of course, in this case that we're waiting on is is our Savior, eternal salvation, either through His return or through us going to Him. But we're longing for that eternal life to truly be ours. But when we find ourselves in a long and heavy trial, relentless battle with temptation, we stare down the spiritual road and we, we just see the path go over the horizon. We don't even see an ending, a finish line, and we start to think, how am I going to make it? If every day is like the one I just had, I don't know that I'm going to make it. And we start to take on what we might call the Elijah complex. Elijah, you remember in 1 Kings 19, this is right after the events on Mount Carmel, remember where God miraculously brings down fire and proves that he is the true God and that Elijah is his true prophet. Then we find Elijah here in verses 13 and 14, when Elijah heard it, this is the presence of God, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's hiding in a cave. Then he said, Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's what Elisha says. He says, I'm here hiding in this cave, God, because I've been very zealous for you. I've done my job, but I'm the only one. I'm the the last believer on the planet, is what he says. And now they want to kill me too. That's why I'm hiding in this cave. And what God says is, get up, get out of the cave, go back to serving. And actually, I've preserved 7,000 other faithful believers that you don't even know about. You're not the last one. You're not the only one. You see, our trials in life tempt us to isolate ourselves and to believe the lie that we're the only ones going through what we're going through. And when we do that, our faith begins to shake and we begin to wonder how in the world we could possibly make it safely through this trial because we think something unique is happening to us. But the author of Hebrews lovingly calls us back and says, no, You need to blow wind in your sails again and remember to imitate those faithful saints who have gone on before you, Christian. Your situation is not unique in church history. Your situation is not unique among Christians living today. Throughout church history, Christians have been faced with every kind of battle, every kind of trial, every kind of temptation, and they've stood firm, trusting in the Lord because God would hold them in his hand and he would cause them to stand and not to falter. Christians have faced lions and bears in the arena. They've been stoned and tortured and burned at the stake. In fact, the Bible that you hold in your hands has blood stains on it. You just can't see them because you have a nice printed copy. But that Bible comes to you by way of many Christians who laid down their lives so that we could have the Bible in our own language. Christians throughout history have stood firm. They've faced the pain of grief and the loss of loved ones. They've faced the grueling situation of living with a painful disease that has no cure. Christians have persevered through difficult marriages. They've persevered through watching adult children whom they love walk away from the faith despite their best efforts and their prayers. Christians throughout history have persevered as they're slandered by the world around them, called immoral and bigots and hateful because they won't budge on what the Bible says. 
So don't believe the lie that your situation and your trial and your temptation is something new on the scene of Christendom. And that's not to belittle your pain, Christian. It's not to to make you feel small. It is for you to turn your eyes to truth and to feel wind in your sails to say, others have run before you and God has brought them safely through and you can run the race too. Whatever trial God has brought into your life, God is bigger, God is enough. Trust him, serve him, and he will faithfully see you through. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your strength, Christian, may fail, but God's strength never will. And his grace is as sufficient for you as it was for Paul. This is why Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptations overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What you're dealing with, Christians have always dealt with, and they're going to keep dealing with. And God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. This is the wind in our sails. Imitate the faithful. Trust God like they trust God. Next week, we'll look at one faithful example in the life of Abraham. But this week, as we close, let me just leave you with three encouragements. Number one, take courage in God's faithful memory. Take courage in God's faithful memory. When you grow weary, when the battle gets long, and your assurance grows thin, Look at the fruit that God has produced in your life and remember that he won't forget it. He will not forget what he began in you. He will complete it. You may feel weak. That's because you are. But he is not. Trust him. And if you look around at your fruit and you try desperately to find some piece of spiritual fruit growing on your tree and then you come to the scary realization that there's none there, And you say, you know what, I said I became a Christian at such and such a time, but I'm just like I was then. I've not progressed in the faith. I'm not winning the battle with sin. Understand there is hope for you as well. Because the Bible says that if you will recognize your sin this morning, if you will humble yourself before a holy God, recognizing that you can't save yourself, that you can't be good enough in the eyes of God, but Christ has done it all, that Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life in your place and died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for sin and then rose again on the third day. The Bible says if you'll believe in him and repent of your sins, that is truly humble yourself, turning to Christ, away from your sin to follow him, believing that he's your only hope of salvation, the Bible says you will be saved. God will make you a new creation, and then you will see fruit on your spiritual tree. So don't despair. If you see no fruit, the response for you is to humble yourself before a holy God in repentance and faith. Secondly, Replace laziness with diligence. Replace laziness with diligence. This morning, as you honestly assess your spiritual life, is your pursuit of Christ better described by the word lazy or diligent? This passage calls each of us to put off our laziness, to get up and to run with diligence. Do you find yourself lacking assurance this morning, Christian? If the answer is yes, then could it be because you've allowed yourself to grow lazy and lax and you're not really running for the Lord in the way you should? Spiritual laziness robs us of our assurance, but the pursuit of diligence by God's grace renews that sense of assurance, of hope. And thirdly, finally, imitate the faith of others. Imitate the faith of others. If your spiritual sails have been lacking the necessary wind to drive your boat forward, then I encourage you to call to mind the faithful believers of the past. Are you struggling with the temptations in a fallen world? Then be encouraged by the example of Joseph, who physically fled his master's house rather than dishonor the Lord with the sinful solicitation of Potiphar's wife. Are you struggling to trust God in your situation? 
Remember the faithful Daniel who, when a law was made forbidding him to pray, he went right up to his room, opened the window, and began to pray. Read biographies of missionaries and faithful servants of God who've gone on before you, who gave their possessions and even their lives for the sake of the gospel. Remember men like William Tyndale, who gave his life because he was committed to translating the Bible you have into English. And he died as a martyr, crying out, Oh God, open the King of England's eyes. Remember Reformation heroes like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. Remember Stephen as he stood there faithfully on that day being stoned by those who were falsely accusing him as he lovingly shared the gospel with them and he prayed for them as he died. But most of all, remember our Savior. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ who though he was God took on human flesh and was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted yet without sin. See him willingly suffering ridicule blasphemy and slander see the blood running into his eyes from the crown of thorns see his tender back torn by the whip see the nails driven through his hands and through his feet and hear him cry to the father my god my god why have you forsaken me as the sky blue grew black that day and he took your sin upon himself remember him christian who was a faithful example, who lived for us, who lived through it all, not because he had to for himself, but for us. Remember the saints who have gone on before us in the faith and tell me which one of them did God forsake. Name me one. And why would we think he would forsake us, Christian? Never. This is the wind in our sails. May we hold on and pursue him with diligence, trusting in his grace to carry us through, and he will bring us safely home. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see you there dying on that tree. Certainly you were an example in that, but that's not the ultimate reason for your death. You on that tree, died for us to take away our sin. We're so grateful for that atoning sacrifice that you so freely gave for us. And God, we pray you would apply these truths to our heart now as we remember you in the way that you've prescribed through the Lord's table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.